All right, guys, this is a really kick-ass episode this week on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast, and it is with Dr. James Steele, an associate professor and researcher in sport and exercise science, and just an all-around really knowledgeable guy in the field of training. Now, this is part three of something really cool, which I titled The Volume Month, where we are trying to tease apart how you can best go about optimizing your training volume, one-off, if not the most important component of your training. In the first two episodes, we had Menno Henselmans and Mike Isratel on, and this time I thought I would get on someone who represents a bit of a different school of thought on all of this. So in this episode, we will delve into the role of effort in training and how that plays an important role for muscle growth and how many people might be overlooking that when they are trying to optimize their training. So if this sounds interesting to you, then I hope you will enjoy this episode. Consider subscribing to the podcast and following along when future episodes like this will come out. Also, if you're a regular listener and you haven't done so already, I'd be really, really appreciative if you could drop a five-star rating on iTunes, which will help this podcast grow, rank higher among other podcasts, and will ultimately help me to do more interviews such as this one. So that would be my little request. And with that, let's jump in. There are a lot of interesting and um, intriguing discussions over what are the main drivers of muscle growth. And I know you have given some talks about this and uh, published some papers which were trying to investigate this. So uh, as of recent times, what has been your thinking around this topic? So how do you think about the main drivers that are really contributing towards muscle growth? Maybe that's a good initial question to start with. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And it's something that I've... um... I've changed my mind on several times over the years. I think um, in, initially, my thinking was primarily around this concept of motor unit recruitment as being the most important sort of factor relating to um, stimulation of, of adaptation to exercise. And um, but, but early on, I think I kind of like just bought into that as being the primary stimuli without really thinking about, well, what, uh, that, that's a, a kind of mechanism that might lead to other mechanisms um, on a more molecular le- level that result in an adaptive response. Um, and, 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 you know, over the last probably you know, five to 10 years, there's been a lot, lot of work coming out looking at mechanistic elements of um, hypertrophic response in particular to resistance exercise. Um, and if you look back at sort of uh, Brad Schoenfeld's 2010 paper, he posed, you know, three sort of um, primary mechanisms for hypertrophic uh, adaptation, um, uh, um, t- uh, mechanical tension. So um, the effect of kind of mechanical tension and, and sensing of that and mechanotransduction to upregulate the kind of molecular processes involved with muscle protein synthesis. Um, the, the role of uh, muscle damage as well, and uh, also the role of uh, metabolic stress as being the kind of, you know, I, I suppose, um, trifecta of mechanisms that are involved in hypertrophic response. Um, and I think since that, then, I, I, I tried to sort of reconcile this idea of, well, uh, the, on a practical set sense, conditions that we think lead to maximal motor unit recruitment um, seem to potentially 
optimize adaptation so maybe it's through some of these more mechanistic elements maybe it is that maximal motor unit recruitment results in um, high levels of mechanical tension uh, maybe it results in um, muscle damage and maybe it you know enhances metabolic stress I think in more recent years though probably the last two or three years um, the role of metabolic stress and um, muscle damage in particular have been sort of questions and there's been work that's come out that um, you know potentially suggests that they might be red herrings of sorts you know they're, they're mechanisms that occur during the types of conditions that we uh, we know lead to hypertrophic adaptation um, but they might not necessarily be primary drivers um, or mechani mechanisms in and of themselves um, and in fact um, uh, Brad along with um, a number of other colleagues Henning Wackeridge and uh, uh, Lee Hamilton uh, etc just just recently um published a new updated review called stimuli and sensors that initiate skeletal muscle hypertrophy following resistance exercise um uh, now ca caveat is i've not actually read the whole paper paper yet i've just given it a quick skim because it's only been out for about a week um but it seems as though you know this updated review is leaning towards mechanical tension and uh you know stimul uh, sensing of mechanical tension and um uh, subsequent sort of mechanotransduction um to upregulate pathways relating to protein synthesis um, seem to be the primary sort of like um, mechanistic uh, uh, driver of hypertrophic response. So, so I think my, my, my thinking has kind of come full circle in the sense that I, I've always felt that, that recruitment of motor units and thus, you know, the experiencing of the muscle fibers in those motor units, uh, them experiencing mechanical tension is a primary driver um, and I think more recently we're realizing that you know that that is 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 the case. Thank you for for that uh, elaborate uh, discussion over this and and with that. So this mechanical tension component there there's a variety of ways in which we can go about inducing mechanical tension on the muscle. And um, typically when we talk about um, kind of targeting growth with training. We talk about a couple of factors. One of them is progressive overload. So lifting more weights or doing more reps over time, just making the exercise belt more challenging over time. Another one is proximity to failure. So training pretty close to failure to make it with a, I guess, a more uh, intensity of effort. And then there's training volume, which is the amount of uh, volume that we, uh, or the volume of training that we perform. So um, how high do you think amongst all the things that we can do to elicit muscle growth volume ranks so how important is training volume compared to other factors in training that's a really good question so i guess i guess we have to think carefully about how we're sort of conceptualizing volume because there's lots of different ways to manipulate the volume um, of resistance training that you do and um we can think about ways of manipulating volume within session um, or over you know uh, longer periods of time so more recently there seems to uh, historically i should start with you know the the arguments are always about um, number of sets performed within session whether that's sets per exercise or sets per muscle group um, whereas more recently the discussion has shifted it seems towards more discussion of a set volume over uh, a period of a week um, and I think that's because there's been more interest in uh, frequency as a way of potentially increasing volume. Um, so, uh, you know, in, an increase in frequency, but uh, maintenance of volume within session can res you know, result in a, a greater volume over a period of time. Um, I, I think 
if I was to sort of like rank those uh, those three things that you kind of listed, you know, as many people will probably know, I'm I'm a, a proponent of um, the importance of um, sufficient intensity of effort in uh, any kind of exercise, um, particular in resistance training. And so I think that there is um, considerable importance to training with um, sufficient proximity to task failure or momentary failure. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't have have that then other variables seem to be um uh, uh seem to not really make too much of a di- difference or indeed if you if you uh, match the intensity of effort between conditions it's questionable the degree to which other variables have an impact on um the adaptive response so i think if i was to, to rank the first it would probably be intensity of effort i think it's a little bit more difficult to figure out exactly where volume lies in that um, because I think you can think about it from a practical sense as well. Um, and so one of the things, for example, that we've discussed is this idea that um, volume can be used in and of itself to increase the intensity of effort of the work that you're doing. So if you're performing sub-maximal sets in the sense that you're not training to failure, um, subsequent sets are going to be performed in a condition of, uh, of fatigue, which um, you know resulted from the previous sets. And so maintaining um, you know the same load or same repetition number, each set is going to feel progressively harder. So it's a way of increasing the intensity of effort in and of itself. Um, so sorry, I feel like I'm rambling there, and I've lost track of what <laughs> the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh... Yeah, basically, you answered it pretty much already. So um, the question was, how high does volume rank amongst all the things that we can do in training to elicit muscle growth? So you would use, if I interpret what you just said correctly, it ranks uh, somewhere below uh, intensity of effort. So going pretty close to failure, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say say that. I think um, particularly with with respect to hypertrophy, I would say that. I get. I think you. Uh, if I had to rank kind of intensity of effort, volume, and lo- load, I would probably do it in that order. Primarily because, um, you know, uh, from a practical sense, volume can be used to manipulate the intensity of effort. Um, if intensity of effort is matched, though, we know that loads typically produce. Uh, you know, a variety of different loads typically produce similar responses. Yeah. So I uh, just want to pick up on something that you just mentioned in the beginning. So you just mentioned uh, as you started uh, answering my first, the previous question was that there is a number of way in which we can uh, quantify training volume. And, and I know that some people in the high intensity training crowd, for example, th- seem to think that counting sets and reps is, is not a good proxy for training volume. And a much better way would be to look at time under load. So what is your kind of favorite definition to quantify training volume? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think I think in most cases the um, I, I I see the argument that's often made from the sort of high intensity training crowd around that um, because they're thinking about comparisons of you know a typical sort of quote unquote hit protocol which typically involves longer repetition duration so more time under load um, whereas you know they typically see the uh, you know um, three sets of 10 or whatever typical kind of recommendation is is normally repetition duration isn't something that's given much consideration and so um, repetitions are done more quickly um, and they often try and sort of like draw those comparisons I think we've got to be careful though, though because there's actually very little research that has compared you know, those two what would be called ecologically valid interpretations of, of training approaches, you know, the typical kind of 
high intensity training hit style versus the typical kind of higher volume uh, approach. Um, and most studies that have looked at manipulating volume do tend to control uh, between the conditions, either higher volume or lower volume, the repetition duration that's used. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we, we published a study um, with, some, with colleagues in Germany, uh, Dr. Jürgen Giesing, um, which did look at, um, in untrained individuals, a typical kind of you know, quote-unquote hit approach of single sets done with a relatively slow repetition duration, um, also with drop sets versus a kind of three sets of 10 not to failure. Um, you know, um, uh, I, don't, I believe there was no control of repetition duration for those sets either. Um, and found that, you know, there were was... Um, positive adaptations in both conditions but that the the quote-unquote hit group seemed to do slightly better um, but we typically we ascribe that as potentially being to due to the um, higher intensities of effort that were achieved during the high intensity training um, intervention um, but yeah there's there's not a lot of research that's compared um, differences in uh, volume by manipulation of time under under load um, to my, my knowledge, there's some work that's looked at um, acute protein synthetic responses and seems to suggest that um, higher time under loads might be better for um, acute increases in muscle protein synthesis. So if I recall rightly, I think one of um, Stuart Phillips' uh, PhD students from a while back, Cameron Mitchell, did some work around that. Uh, but I'm trying to sort of like recall that off the top of my head. Um, so I think to kind of get back to the question... Um, I don't really have a favored way of quantifying uh, volume, um, or at least not one that has been looked at in the literature. I think there is a, a potential interesting way of looking at it, um, which I think uh, I think Borges has uh, kind of um, used in the past, which is the number of times a... Um, or essentially a way of quantifying it based upon intensity of effort and the amount of time spent at different intensities of effort. So, for example, if you're doing one set to failure, you've you've achieved, um, you know, uh, uh, maximal effort once during the workout. Is there additional benefit from achieving, um, you know, uh, uh, repeating that that and achieving failure multiple times? Um, it would be a difficult thing to to examine though, um, in the sense of uh, the volume of exposures to that kind of failure event or even you know differing proximities to failure whilst also trying to control volume in the sense of the number of repetitions performed or even um, based on volume load um, so it would be a tricky way of doing it but I think that's a potential way of, uh, of looking or, or that's an interesting avenue for research to uh, to take yeah yeah um, so uh, just to clarify for those listening I think what you were referring to previously with Berger Fagerli's um, concept of uh, quantifying volume, which is not, not even necessarily a way of quantifying volume, but just a very useful proxy for quantifying the quality of your workout, which is the number of kind of effective reps, which you're stimulating in any given set. And I would, I would completely agree with you in that the type of failure that is achieved by some of the high intensity crowd in their training sessions is probably not comparable to the type of failure that is reported in studies when they say that with it, 10 sets of squats to failure. Most probably in that latter case, it's mainly just uh, people stopped doing squats when it got pretty challenging and they just kind of uh, wussed out for like a better term. Um, yeah, but um, just uh, speaking of, of volume for, for just a few more seconds, um, what do you think about the recent kind of emerging literature that is 
pretty strongly indicating a kind of dose response relationship between volume training volume and uh, hypertrophy what, what do you think about this so so that's an interesting question and um you know i'm assuming you're kind of referring to um you know brad's uh meta-analysis brad schoenfeld's meta-analysis yeah. uh, from a couple of years ago and obviously there was recently a um a study published by brad in um and 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 colleagues in medicine science and sport and exercise which caveat i was actually a peer reviewer for that that article um oh, nice. and um it, it was a really nice study uh, you know a hard study to do um particularly using trained participants um and yeah so so I, I, you know, we've we've questioned um, the use of meta-analysis in this field in the past, purely from the perspective that, um, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneity between, you know, variability between studies um, uh, that have examined differences in volume, for example. Um, you know, some use high load, some use low load, some look at upper body, some look at lower body, and. Um, it's it's possible that that the interaction of some of these other variables might be impacting the um, uh, the nature of the re- relationship between volume and adaptation. Um, but if you if you kind of discount that and just look at Brad's recent study, yeah, the data in their study does seem to suggest that there is a is a dose response relationship. Um, with respect to muscle hypertrophy um, now I know there's been some some criticisms of of the study in the sense that um, you know some of the additional um, changes in muscle thickness that were seen in the in the higher volume conditions might be a result of um, uh, edema or, or you know um, a fluid in the muscle um, and you know that that's 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 a, a distinct possibility um, but it, you know, just on the face of it, their data does seem to suggest this kind of linear dose response. Um, but I don't know if you've seen it. Literally this week, um, we um, I was involved in a study um, that uh, was finished a while back now, um, but has only just been been published um, along with Paolo Gentile and and um, colleagues James Fisher and Antonio Paoli and Victor Coswig and all the ten, ten versus twenty sets um, in one session, which looked um, at. Um, look to kind of characterize the dose response relationship between volume and resistance training uh, volume and uh, strength and hypertrophy adaptations in trained women um so i don't know if you've seen that study but i can send it over if you like this one characterized it based on weekly volume so it was five sets uh, uh 10 sets 15 sets and 20 sets um and uh they, they performed a kind of split routine and uh and manipulated the number of sets per session, but essentially it was it was that was the volume of sets um, per week, um, and and the results were very interesting. In that we we looked at um, a number of different sites for muscle hypertrophy, and we looked at a number of different outcomes for um, for strength, and uh, we found pretty consistent um, a, a pretty consistent kind of dose response relationship, but one that was not linear um, in the sense that uh, you know that brad found um or that their previous meta-analysis suggested um, and what we actually found was that um for, for pretty much every outcome the five to five and ten sets group uh five and ten sets per week um had larger increases in both strength and hypertrophy compared to the 15 and 20 sets per week um and the 15 sets typically did slightly better than the the 20 set group so there was kind of this almost um inverted u 
kind of shape to the uh, to the dose response curve. Although um, statistically there weren't any differences between five and ten sets um, per week. Um, and I'm sure Paolo probably won't mind me saying this as well. They've also replicated this study in trained males, um, and it's currently under review at the moment, um, and also included a, uh, a mid-time point um, for that study and, and found very similar results, um, uh, which kind of suggested that there was potentially an overtraining effect um, after the first 12 weeks of training for the higher set volume groups. Oh yeah, yeah. I I just looked it up, and yeah, it's. Uh, I, I have seen this study, or I, I've seen someone uh, posting a discussion of this study. And so, uh, just to clarify, how many training sessions did this uh, study involve uh, per week, or how was the volume distributed? Um, so they trained twice per week. Hang on, I'm just going to pull up the table just so I don't accidentally say something that's not quite true. Um, uh, sorry. So they trained uh, three times a week, but it was done as a kind of split routine of um, upper, Mondays were a kind of upper body pressing uh, session. Uh, Thursdays were upper body pulling session and um, Fridays were uh, lower body. So they did three exercises per session and, and manipulated the number of sets per exercise. Um, so, for example, the, uh, the five set group um, did two sets for on Mondays, for example, did two sets of barbell bench press, two sets of inclined barbell bench press, and one set of military press. Um, and then the 10 set group did 442, 15 set did 555, and 20 set did 776. So we kind of manipulated like that. But for, for each kind of um, muscle group, um, you know, they were they were essentially kind of trained once a week with varying set volumes per session. Right. Okay. So yeah, in the case of someone doing 20 sets per week, that would be uh, within one session, right? In this study, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. And, and it would be really cool to see uh, the same kind of setup with um, sort of modified variables, such as the proximity to failure. Maybe instead of going to failure, maybe one set, sh one rep shy of failure or two reps shy of failure, or maybe splitting up the sessions to uh, kind of more frequent workouts. So maybe tw two or three times a week kind of frequencies and distributing it over that. But nevertheless, it's a very interesting study. And um, yeah, also unique in the sense that uh, kind of the intensity of effort was much better controlled as from what I've seen at least uh, than in most studies. Um, yeah, so a um, couple, couple of other concepts. So what, what do you think about the notion that as long as volume is equated in most studies, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a difference between a high rep work and low rep work. So you could be lifting very heavy weights or very light weights. And as long as the volume is the same, muscle growth also seems to be the same. Um, how does this finding strike you generally? Um, so, so I think in actually what, what we tend to see is with, with heavy, it's not necessarily that the volume, um, you get the same responses with heavy and light loads when volume is matched, because um, it's actually the case that, that when volume is matched, whether it's um, you know just straight volume in terms of number of sets and repetitions, or volume load is matched, you actually tend to see that heavier loads outperform um, lighter lo loads. Um, but in order to, typically with lighter loads, to reach momentary failure, you have to perform a higher volume um of uh, repetitions um and that subsequently tends to result in a higher volume load as well um so actually you, you tend to see that the um that there is um greater adaptations in heavy load load training compared to light load training when volume 
um, is matched, but when volume's not matched by allowing them to train to failure in both conditions, you typically see that the responses are, are very, very similar. Um, and, and some people have kind of, uh, or from what I can tell, um, and um, from sort of reviewing studies and, and, and having discussions with authors about their sort of interpretation of their findings, um, so some seem to um, interpret that as suggesting the additional volume in the lower load conditions is what is um, driving the similar growth, uh, whereas you know my interpretation would would um, be slightly different, and in, and that in actual fact it's very very likely to be that the um, the intensity of effort and and thus subsequent motor unit recruitment and thus you know stimulation and uh, uh, mechanical tension um, across those muscle fiber motor units and muscle fibers. Um, is probably what's resulting in the similar adaptations between the two, right? Um, yeah, and and um, that that actually is a, is a good point to bring it up. Like, do you do you think that there is kind of a lower threshold of volume, uh, which is which is required to achieve muscle growth? Like, so for example, do you think that the high intensity uh, training crowds, kind of one set to failure per week sort of approach, um, is sufficient to kind of get someone to their genetic potential? Or, um, yeah, how do you think about this concept of lower threshold of volume? I, I think that's a really interesting question because um, a lot of people will look at these sort of, you know, anywhere between six to 24 week studies and uh, where we do see differences in terms of um, the adaptations produced by, for example, different volumes, people... Um, infer that over time you know that that gap between the adaptations will grow larger um and you know over a longer period of time for example higher volumes result in greater gains whereas you know in reality we have literally no data that that has even tested this, this kind of idea of, of what happens longer term with these different training inter interventions um and so you know i i would speculate that it's highly likely that if continued for a, for a long enough period of time, um, you know, the typical kind of low volumes, even single sets to failure, will by and large, you, you'll reach your kind of genetic ceiling. Um, it may take a different uh, amount of time compared to maybe doing higher volumes. And um, I don't necessarily think that's because the, the additional volume is um, is inherently better than the lower volumes. I think it probably comes more down to the, the practical implementation of um, that type of training. Like you said, you know, it's questionable whether a lot of people do actually train to failure um, like properly. Um, I, I, I always find it surprising the number of um, students, for example, here at the university that um, when we do any kind of demonstrations and I ask them, do they train to failure? And they nod their heads and say, oh, yeah, yeah I always train to failure. And then after I've put them through a session, <laughs> they've suddenly got a new conceptualization of what failure actually means. Um, so, so I think, um, you know, for a lot of pe people, additional volumes, coming back to the point we made earlier, um, is a way of potentially increasing the intensity of effort of their training because they, huh. they almost accumulate, uh, they use, it can be used to accumulate fatigue and thus increase the intensity of effort in the later um, parts of the workout. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, to, to simplify the answer, uh, what's the minimum amount of volume you need to do? Um, something. And uh, <laughs> like you, you're not going to grow if you don't lift weights. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, given a sufficient period of time, I would speculate that um, you know you'll you'll eventually hit your kind of genetic ceiling, um, and that any differences in protocol are 
in my opinion, highly unlikely to make much of a difference um, once you've kind of reached that point. Yeah. Um, and, may and maybe this is, uh, this is where the discussion over frequency, um, or actually, there's two things that I think this brings up. One is whether, for example, one set per week kind of two failure protocol could get someone to the same place as someone doing 15 hard sets to failure uh, or close to failure at least per week. And if we, but, but in a practical sense, maybe the guy who's doing 15 sets a week will simply in his lifetime get to his genetic potential, whereas the one set to failure guy won't because we have a limited amount of time on earth to actually train. But if time wasn't a factor over time, the two uh, people would kind of converge to the same point. So do you think that um, maybe there is an argument to be made that higher volumes can get you gains at a faster rate? Yeah, I, I would agree, agree with that. Um, and I think, like you said, I said, it comes down to the, the practical implications of it. Um, but I, I think it's worth kind of saying as well that, um, you know, no, saying higher volu volumes, uh, we then have to come back to well, what do we mean by higher volumes? Um, and does that necessarily mean that you need to be doing multiple sets within a session of the exercises um, that you're including? Um, or is it a case that um, assuming you, you have the right sort of exercise selection, you can still, you know, for all intents and purposes, do a relatively low volume workout, including single sets of um, a selection of exercises, perhaps done in a kind of... Um, split manner throughout the week or maybe you you do a couple of sessions a week that involve um you know uh, a kind of a and b full body routine where you just manipulate the exercises but are still performing only one set of each of those exercises and you can still begin to accumulate volume that actually kind of falls in line with some of the recommendations um from uh, in particular from for example uh you know the meta-analysis from brad a few years ago you know there, there's a lack of data looking at greater than 10 sets per week um and there's only really a couple of studies that are coming out now including ours and brad's recent one and uh one from dr lee breen's lab um which you know showing some mixed mixed results so maybe over time we'll learn more about whether you know really high volumes do in fact um eke out additional adaptation you know i i i've I'm skeptical, but, um, you know, we might find that. Um, but actually, you know, you could take that kind of like 10 sets a week approach and quite easily come up with a, a protocol that hits that 10 sets per muscle group per week, um, but that most high-intensity training kind of advocates would look at and see that as being a high-intensity training protocol. Um, so I, I think, think, you know, we sometimes talk past each other in this sense when we start to label ourselves as being in any particular camps. Um, and actually, there's a lot more similarities in terms of the typical recommendations that people are giving uh, than, we, than we typically think there are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of failure, uh, how much do you actually think that going actually to the point of concentric muscular failure, so the point where you are failing a rep, so... If you were to do like a machine chest press, you're attempting that, I don't know, 11th rep after the 10th and you're failing it midway, midway through the set or the rep rather, uh, how much do you think that is actually necessary? And uh, do you think that there is kind of a point of diminishing returns with this kind of the um, typical recommendation given out in bodybuilding circles, for example, is to stop at the point where you're sure that you couldn't complete the next rep with good form at least. And so kind of... Um, one rep or two reps shy of failure is the kind of colloquial term here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And uh, it's pertinent because I, I gave a talk um, at the ACSM uh, earlier this year kind of covering that topic. 
um, and, I'm, and I'm giving a kind of updated version of that talk this weekend in Bologna. Um, so, so I guess there's two ways of looking at it. There's the um, there's the kind of um, you know do do we know whether or not proximity to failure um, and as such um, the intensity of effort um, do do we know what the dose response relationship is. Um, with respect to kind of hypertrophic adaptation. And I think the simple answer is um, we don't really know um, whether or not um, or, or what the dose-response relationship actually is in terms of its nature because we don't have um, enough studies that have looked at varying degrees of proximity to failure um, and their subsequent impact on, on adaptation. Um, what we do typically have is studies that have looked at broadly speaking, either higher or lower efforts. They've kind of looked at it in a kind of dichotomous fa fashion. Um, and so what we do tend to see is, is the literature does seem to suggest that, you know, higher efforts typically outperform lower efforts. Um, but the closer those kind of efforts are, um, you know, uh, along a spectrum, you know, the, the less obvious any kind of difference is or, or you know, we're not necessarily able to detect it. So, um, for example, there was a, a recent study um, which looked at um, heavy and light loads, either to failure or not to failure. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can come back to this idea of it's questionable whether or not people are really training to failure when it's reported that they are. Um, and uh, but but you know they found no differences really uh, between heavy loads to failure or heavy loads not to failure, light loads to failure or light loads not to failure. Uh, but in this sense, um, you know this was an untrained participants, and um, both conditions were relatively high failure, as in they were one was to failure, quote unquote, and one was very close to fa failure. Um, now we we've done a couple of studies um, with our colleagues. Um, uh, in Germany, it's Jürgen Giesing again, where we've, um, you know, we, we've actually asked people to kind of try and stop um, at that kind of um, one rep short of failure, which we, we kind of term it as self-determined rep max, because um, we kind of think of uh, repetition maximum as being the maximum number of complete repetitions you could do. Um, the problem is you, you can never know what that is unless you actually train to failure um, because every time you complete a rep, unless you try the next one, you never know whether you could have also completed that. Um, and so we kind of refer to it as a self-determined rep, rep max, stopping you know when you think you'll fail on the next rep if, if you attempted it. Um, and, and in untrained um, it, it participants, coming back to this, this study where we kind of looked at um, a typical hit versus a typical kind of like higher volume approach. Um, you know, we found that there was um, greater adaptations in the in the hit group, um, but there are also differences in volume there. Um, and in, in a separate study with trained individuals where we did try to kind of match the volume load between the conditions, um, we found that the group that tried to stop one rep short of failure didn't really make much in the way of um, additional adaptations, whereas the group that was training to failure um, continued to make improvements. So I think there is, um, in a practical sense, some benefit to training to failure um, rather than attempting to try and stop short of failure. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is because we're just really bad at predicting how close to failure we are. Um, and and there's, a, there's a few lot of reasons for that. And I think part of it is because um, without instruction or without kind of thinking about it, we tend to anchor our perceptions of effort on how uncomfortable the exercise feels. Um, you know, so you, like the example you gave of doing like a, a set of squats, you know, um, 
particularly if you're using kind of low to moderate loads, like a, a, a high rep set of squats feels horrible. Um, and I, I imagine a lot of people probably get, reach what they think is failure, but really they're just uh, volitionally uh, ending the exercise because it feels uncomfortable. Um, but we've done a number of studies, or, or we, we've published one study and we've got um, another study in review um, looking essentially at people's ability to predict how many reps they could do to failure. Um, and so we, we published one, um, uh, I think it was the beginning, no, end of last year, where we asked people to kind of give predictions based on their prior training experience of how many reps they thought they could do to failure. Um, and, and we found that typically people sort of underpredict by uh, you know around about two repetitions. Um, th th there seems to be an improvement with experience where kind of people who have been training for multiple years um, under predict by about one repetition. But even then, you know, um, that, that suggests that, that um, small differences in, in rep number might have an impact on, uh, or, or small differences in proximity to failure might have an impact on adaptation. Um, we, 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 I can tell you these results as a kind of sneak preview, but we, we did a really cool, cool study recently, or I think it's a cool study, I don't know if anyone else will, um, but we, we did a kind of deception study. So we, we, we recruited uh, participants and told them that what we were doing was doing a reliability study. Um, and we wanted them to do two, two um, they came in on uh, separate, four separate days. And on two of those days, they did um, a set of um, self-determined rep max. So they, they were told to stop when they felt they'd fail on the next repetition. And on the other two days, they did uh, set, set uh, repetitions to failure. Uh, but we, we just told them that what we were doing was looking at the between-day reliability between the number of reps they did within each condition. Um, what we were really doing was actually comparing whether the self-determined rep max really was one rep short of failure. Um, and so we, we did we did two experiments. We did one where we used a kind of seven, baseline 70% of 1RM um, and another one where we actually tested their maximal voluntary contraction on that day. Um, so we kind of captured, you know, how strong they were on that day just to try and reduce any between-day variability. Um, and, and yeah, we, we kind of found similar results in that um, participants are, these were trained participants as well. And in, in the first experiment, you know, they, they tend to underpredict by somewhere between one to two repetitions. And in the second experiment, they underpredict by somewhere between sort of two to four repetitions. Um, so, you know, in, in reality, when people are trying to uh, manipulate their proximity to failure, it seems like they're actually pretty bad at it. Um, and so from a practical sense, uh, we, we don't know whether there is a kind of threshold um, for optimizing adaptation based on proximity to failure because there's just not the research to to kind of tell us what that is. Um, so from a practical sense, it makes it make, makes sense to me to essentially just train to failure to ensure that you have passed that threshold. Um, and then, you you know, you've kind of like covered all bases in that sense. Right, okay. So... Um... I so I, I I think I understand your your uh, kind of fundamental take on what constitutes um, effective uh, training. So we need to train hard. I, I get that. And um, so if someone comes to you who is is a guy, let's say who is pretty well trained, uh, what would be like kind of um, a practical sort of average protocol that you would put someone on? Not I don't mean specifically in terms of exercises and things, but in terms of um, like what sort of weights to lift um what kind of 
what kind of intensity of like for example one rep max what percentage of that to lift how many sets to do how many reps to do uh, all these kinds of things like what would be a, a good general baseline to start somebody in your opinion yeah that's a good question so so i t i tend to i think because of the you know my 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 interpretation of there being you know in the grand scheme of things, so little difference between lots of different sort of iterations of training interventions, assuming, you know, people are trained, actually turning up and training and putting in, you know, a decent intensity of their effort. Um, everything else becomes, by and large, um, a matter of preference from my perspective. So I always like to kind of strip it down to something really basic and get people to start from there and then tell them to experiment um, with what they actually um, enjoy and are, are likely to stick to and adhere to. Um, so I'll typically get people to start, um, depending upon their, you know, their individual kind of recovery and, and, and how it generally makes them feel of anywhere between sort of one to three workouts a week. Um, cause you know, uh, by and large, the frequency of training again is something that, um, you know, it, it may influence the, the results, but, um, it's 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 not having a huge impact pact from my interpretations of the of the literature um i, I tend to tend to uh, err towards kind of two days a week as a kind of baseline because i always think about it and this is kind of putting my public health recommendations head on as well is that if if you uh, we've been having a lot of debate around this um, because we're we're currently in the process in the uk of revising our physical activity guidelines and um most people don't know, but the physical activity guidelines do suggest that you should do what they call muscle strengthening activity, which for me is resistance training. Um, and they, they recommend doing it twice a week. Um, well, actually, you know, the, 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 the most recent data suggests that assuming, you know, you're performing uh, a minimum kind of volume, um, it doesn't matter whether you do that in one session a week or you split it across multiple sessions. Um, but from a practical sense, um, we've had the discussion that the problem is if you tell people to do it once a week um, and they miss a session, well, then they've not, not trained for two weeks. Um, <laughs> whereas if they do it twice a week and they miss one session, ah, it's not the end of the world. Um, so, so in practical sense, I, I typically start with kind of twice a week, um, you know, a small selection of exercises that target all the major kind of muscle groups of the body um, tend to favor whole body routines because, um, again, it comes back to this idea of if you miss one workout, then you're still going to at least train all of the major muscle groups at least once per week um, and, and encourage people to, um, you know, to perform single set to momentary failure or as close as they, they possibly can get to that. Um, and then play around with it from there and find, you know, what you enjoy. Some, some people like sticking to a program and, and just doing that. Some people enjoy variety uh, and changing things up, maybe adding in some different exercises, maybe increasing the volume, maybe training a bit more frequently, using, you know, different loads. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, finding what, what your personal preference is for training um, and then just training consistently and training to a sufficient intensity of effort. Everything else kind of becomes uh, window dressing after that for me. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you for that. Uh, that. That was nicely laid out. And uh, do you think if, if someone is pretty highly trained um, and is doing, um, well, as, as much as we can actually have an objective definition for this uh, high-ish volume of training, so like 10 plus sets a week, and let's say that the person is actually uh, happens to be one of those individuals who actually trains to one rep shy of failure per set and uh, is not just fooling him or herself. Um, do you think there is an inherent reason or to 
reduce the volume of training for that person? Do you think that um, he could actually get better results by doing that? Um, well, if if you go by the you know the data from um, the recent study that that um, we published with Paolo Gentile, um, and also so you know we've got similar data in trained men, which we're we're currently looking at publishing. Um, I, I think the the data that we've got shows that there's there's very little difference between sort of five to ten sets um, per week in trained participants, and but that increasing the volume much higher than that. Um, may lead to a kind of um, overtraining effect potentially. Um, so I think if someone's kind of reaching that kind of, you know, um, 10 sets per week recommendation that, that comes from these meta-analyses, um, I don't necessarily think that they'll gain additional, um, uh, they'll gain much in the way of additional adaptation from reducing the uh, volume. But it's very likely that they'll be getting similar adaptations from reducing the volume. And so it comes down more to a kind of practical um, sense again in that, you know, if, if, if you're limited for time, then you can reduce the volume per week and, uh, and maybe fit it in a bit more easy and still likely get very similar adaptations. But if you're the type of person who loves training, then stick to the volume you're doing and, and uh, you know, you're probably going to be producing largely the same effects. Um, of course, you know, I've, it's always worth pointing out, as much as it kind of irks me um, somewhat that, that, that um, this is always a kind of fallback, but, you know, all studies report um, essentially kind of what, what we would consider point estimates for an effect in a population. So, you know, if, if a study shows that there are similar results from five or ten sets per week, and then what we're saying is uh, that in, in trained men or trained women, um, the population effect that we're estimating is that there's no difference. Of course, there's always going to be variation around that population effect for individuals, though. Um, and so there's, to an extent, self-experimentation that's required to figure out what, what seems to be working best for you. Um, but it, there's always the... Um, people always need to realize that um, that self-experimentation is it's difficult to infer cause and effect from it for yourself it's it's nigh impossible to infer cause and effect and then translate that to someone else as well um so you know people bash the idea that studies report means and um uh, but in actual fact in reality from a statistical perspective the the means that are reported by studies are your best bet for a starting point and then from there, you can self-experiment to figure out what seems to be working best for you, but it doesn't go back in the other direction. So I think people just need to be cautious of using their own anecdotes to try and influence other people's training. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I guess that would be kind of my perspective on that. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, just kind of a um, random question to the end. Uh, what are your thoughts on super slow training? Um, so I, I think... I think it's an, a, a a viable option. Um, from a kind of um, ad adaptive response perspective, there's there's actually you know uh, there's not that much research that has looked at different repetition durations um, in resistance tra training. Most historical studies that have looked at you know the the quote unquote typical super slow approach, which is um, sometimes interpreted as a kind of um, uh, 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 
5-5 or 10-10. Most commonly, it's, it's a kind of 10-second concentric, 10-second eccentric. Um, most of the studies that have compared that to other repetition durations have also manipulated other variables. So typically, they'll reduce the load for the super slow. Um, so they're training with a lower load, they're training with uh, longer repetition durations, and they're comparing that to training with higher loads and faster repetition durations. And, and so there's a lot of kind of messy um, studies out there which are difficult to sort of interpret what really um you know whether there really is any difference between a super slow protocol and a you know normal kind of um single set to failure protocol with a free free or a you know typical kind of one one type uh, repetition duration um but we did uh, we, uh our colleagues over at discover strength in uh, the us which we've done run a number of studies with over the years um the, the latest one that we we've completed and published was actually um uh, the first to to look at differences in repetition duration whilst attempting to maintain um, parity in terms of the loads across the conditions. Um, so we actually had um, a group that did, and these are all trained participants again as well. They're all existing kind of clients at Discover Strength who've been training with them for, in, in most cases, you know, multiple years. Um, we had one group that did the typical kind of, uh, you know, two, four, um, hit type rep duration, two second concentric, four second eccentric. Uh, we had a group that did the uh, 10 second concentric, 10 second eccentric, super slow type protocol. Um, and then we also added in um, Dr. Ellington Darden published a book uh, in recent years where he kind of he uh, presented a protocol um, uh, called the 30 30 30 protocol, which is essentially a um, uh, a 30 second eccentric followed by a 30 second concentric followed by a 30 second uh, eccentric um, and so we we examined that as well and and we had all, all groups trained to failure so with the 30 30 30 group we had them attempt uh, a repetition after completing the 30 30 30 um, to make sure that they had actually reached failure um, and, and we didn't actually find any differences between those protocols in, in any of the outcomes that we looked at um, and so what it says to me is that, um, you know, much like many other variables, when we're controlling for, uh, for intensity of effort, um, there seems to be, by and large, very similar adaptations. Um, so I, I think I, I've used this phrase with, uh, on another podcast um, with uh, Lawrence Neal, um, uh, that, that kind of, you know, it seems to me that assuming you're training to failure, um, all roads seem to lead to Rome. Uh, in the sense that you know most adaptations are very largely very similar um, whether you go fast or you go slow whether you um, lift heavy weights or you lift light weights um, whether you do slightly more volume or slightly less volume whether you chuck in some advanced uh, techniques um, after going to failure um, or not it seems to all very much um, be um, you know, if if there is any differences, they're likely to be very, very small and probably only meaningful to certain individuals or populations. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And I'm I'm actually really curious to find out more about this in the future, because um, uh, if it is indeed the case that rep duration doesn't really matter and you could accomplish the same thing with much lighter loads, but uh, going slower, that could have huge implications for things like injury prevention and um, kind of just the sustainability of training. So um, yeah, super, super interesting concept. I'll add one more, one thing on that though. Um, and again, you know, 
part of I think part of my shift more towards um, an interest in in the public health side of physical activity and exercise and trying to figure out ways of getting people just to do it in the first place. Um, because you know a lot, a lot of the conversations and I, don't get me wrong, I love having the conversations around around you know the minutia of training. Um, but but you know there's a lot of people who just don't do anything at all. And so I'm I'm interested in how do you get people to actually start resistance training in the first place, considering the benefits it can have. Um, and one thing that's worth pointing out is that, um, you know, uh, a lot of people will anecdotally say super slow is really boring. Um, <laughs> and so if that's the case, um, you know, um, it might well be that it's potentially safer. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a potential bonus. But if people find it boring, then they might not do it. Now, that's not to say everyone will. Um but it's also worth, you know, thinking about um, other elements that might impact whether people do or don't train or whether they stick to the training or not. And that's things like, um, you know, their, their kind of um, enjoyment factor. Um, we, we've done a lot of work looking at um, the amount of discomfort that's produced by different uh, training approaches. So we've typically looked at heavy and light loads form to failure um, and find that, you know, it's probably no surprise to anyone, but light loads are more uncomfortable when performed to failure than heavy loads. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the discourse around heavy and light load training has been that, well, look, light loads produce similar adaptations. So people, sh uh, light loads are a good option because, um, you know, for example, uh, elderly individuals who are fearful of injury risk and things like that, you know, they could benefit from light loads. Whereas um, a flip side to that is, well, actually, light loads are much more uncomfortable um, than doing heavy loads. So maybe heavy loads are better because, uh, you know, you're more likely to, uh, or, you know, you're less likely to experience discomfort whilst doing them. Um, but again, I think it all comes back to um, personal preference. Um, you know, personally, like I love the discomfort from training hard. Uh, I'm a bit of a masochist in that respect, so I, 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 I'll admit it feels uncomfortable, but I like it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very much with you on that one. Uh, there's kind of a sweet spot to be to be hit between optimality and uh, sustainability from an enjoyment perspective. So that's that's very well said. So, um, so James, I think I asked you all of my questions. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for doing this. So, uh, yeah, I guess just um, let people know where they can find you, um, uh, maybe take a look at your work and just any kind of uh, future projects that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, first, thanks for having me on. You know, it's, it's, it's always fun to chat, talk shop, as I like <laughs> to say. Um, so I'm always happy to do so. Um, yeah, people can uh, find me on, you know, I'm, I'm on social media. Um, I, I tend not to use Facebook very much anymore, so I'm mainly on mainly on Twitter and people can find me at, at James Steele II. Um, uh, and I tend to be pretty active on there. I share, share a lot of um, our research, other people's research, you know, any interesting kind of thoughts I might have. And then also um, random other things which are completely unrelated to, to my work or job, but just stuff I like. Um, if people want to get in contact with me via email, then they can either email me at my um, university address, which is james.steel at solent.ac.uk, or they can email me at um, the UK Active Research Institute, and that's James Steele, all one word, at ukactive.org.uk. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, we've we've got 
we've got, a, well, I seem to have a lot of projects on the go at the moment. Um, on the kind of training side of things, um, like I said, we've got this this deception study, which I'm quite interested in uh, getting the findings out for and getting people's thoughts on that. Um, we've been doing some work as well, looking at um, comparisons between resistance training and kind of quote unquote cardio modalities uh, whilst controlling for effort and uh, duration of exercise. So we did an acute study we published at the beginning of this year. We're halfway through doing a training study. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm excited to get that finished up and, and get the results out um, around that. And um, yeah, on, on the other side of things, on the UK Active side of things, we're I'm doing some work around exercise referral schemes. So um, where kind of physicians, GPs refer patients for exercise. Um, and we're, we're currently putting together a big database of schemes. Um, we've currently got about 25,000 people's worth of data, um, looking at a lot of different outcomes from exercise referral schemes and looking at what kinds of schemes seem to be best. And uh, you know, my, my hope is that the ones that do resistance training are going to be the ones that perform best, but we'll, we'll wait and see what the data says. So yeah, lots of stuff going on. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, James, uh, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, Angie. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. James Steele. And if you did, well, it was my pleasure bringing it to you. And if I can ask for a tiny, tiny favor, please drop me a five-star rating on iTunes on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast to help this podcast grow, be more recognized, and make it possible for me to keep doing interviews like this one with the best guests and experts out there. So this was our episode for this week on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. Next week, another cool interview is going to come live on the same topic so be sure that you're subscribed to the podcast to be up to date when that comes out and with that see you next time